The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is... Sunday edition with Anthony Corona. Every week here on ACB Media One, that's American Council of the Blind, Media One, and soon after on all your major podcast catchers. Each week we'll dive into the news, human interest, and discussions about the issues surrounding all of us in and out of the American Council of the Blind community. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Edition. As you just heard, I'm your host, Anthony Corona. And is it Sunday again already? Seems like just a day or so ago I was doing this with the crew. Um, Sheila is back this week. Welcome, Sheila. Working on the hosting controls for us. Thank you. It's good to be back. Awesome, awesome. Herbie is connecting our clubhouse and will let us know if we have some clubhouse participation. So if you're in and listening and you have questions or comments from Martine later in the show, uh, let Herbie know and you will be able to interact with us. And of course, executive producer extraordinaire, Ms. Bryn Lee. Bryn, how are you doing this week? Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, you sound very cheerful and uh, strangely awake for a Sunday oh. edition morning. Oh, that's that's the caffeine talking, Anthony. <laughs> How was your week, Bren? Very good. Um, I had a big long trip to um, <clears throat> to Bemidji for my for my job, so I was on the bus for seven hours each way, mm-hmm. and uh, whew, that was a that was a lot of podcasts. I listened to lots and lots of podcasts. Or learned some interesting stuff. Oh heck yeah. <laughs> All right, awesome. What do you have going on on the fun zone this week? Well, um, so I was in the mood to hear, I've had a song stuck in my head all week and I wanted an excuse to, to play it. Um, so I've had bird, 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 bird is the word um, stuck in my brain. And so I thought, well, what topic could I play uh, that would allow me to hear that song again? And so we're doing songs about birds. Bird, 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 bird is the word. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the fun zone tonight at uh, 7 p.m., if I'm correct. Yeah, Eastern, the show right? is for the birds. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank everybody that participated this last Wednesday in the Sunday Edition Book Club. This was the second so far. It will Our new and permanent home will be on the second Wednesday of every month. So the next meeting that we'll have will be Wednesday, September 13th at 9 p.m., and we will be discussing the book A Swiftly Tilting Planet by Madeline Langle. Um, this week I'll put out the DB information and the synopsis of the book so everybody can get to reading. Um, Britton, any other announcements that I should make? Um, you know, I cannot think of any. Um, you and I have a very packed uh Sunday yeah. with uh, a board meeting and a town hall for BPI. Um, but other than that, no, I I, I cannot think of anything sp- specifically that we should talk about. 
Well, I do know that those convention podcasts are starting to come out. So be on the lookout, especially for some of that Blind Pride International programming. That was so great. And our open mic was broadcast this weekend on Friday and just before this show on ACB Media 4. So relatively soon, you can also access the um, open mic that we did during convention on the Pride Connection podcast feed. Um, you can get Sunday edition there as well by going to www.acbmedia.org. Click on podcasts and go down the link. Uh, you know, all the links, Sunday edition is there, Pride Connection is there, Tuesday Topics, Visibilities, and all the great shows that ACB Media produces. But we are here to talk with Ms. Martine Abel-Williams, the president of the World Blind Union, who I have to say is also a really cool lady. We had the opportunity um to sit and talk and and really get to know each other at the acb convention in schomburg illinois fate and gabriel's fabulous wine tastings conspired so that i was able to sit next to martine get to know her and um we formed a friendship in fact i was told that one of our uh wine bottles made it all the way back to new zealand so martine welcome 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 thank you for getting up at uh you know the crack of dawn to be here with us today uh good morning everybody can you hear me clearly we do yeah you sound pretty good oh well yeah i, I tried to get up a bit earlier than needed otherwise people say to me oh did you just get out of bed or do you have a cold i don't want to get on the show with a bad voice so I got up a little bit earlier. And those bird songs made me think. As a child, I loved La Paloma Blanca. My mom always played it in the car on her good old cassettes. And near, nearer to the future, nearer to the reason I love, um, I'm like a bird by Nelly Fataro. So thank you for planting those seeds in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, BPI and and Bryn and I are um, especially good at planting songs in your head. <laughs> oh, please don't remind me. I'm still recovering. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for folks that did not have the fabulous opportunity to clink some glasses with you and share some good cheese and chocolate, um, why don't you tell us a little about uh, about yourself? Tell us where you were born and grew up and and how you came to be such a strong advocate for the blind and low vision community. Uh, yeah, I was born in Namibia. That used to be the old Southwest Africa. And um, I always say to people that, you know, uh, we can't let blindness define who we are. But when I was diagnosed with uh, being blind at the age of six months, um, my parents got told, my mom, my single mom got told at the time that there's no schooling opportunity, education opportunity for me in Namibia, that she'll need to send me to a school for the blind in South Africa. So she decided to, to that we should move there. Not that it helped much because I still went to the school for the blind, which was more than a thousand kilometers One away, but in the same country. Um, really had a, had a great time as a, as, as a child. Um, uh, then, of course, university was mainstream. It was a bit of a culture shock. You know, you go from a Form 7 or matriculation a class of, of 12 blind people that are very close to my first psychology class. I think we were about 400 students. So going a, a bit of a, a, a small fish in a big pond. And I just wanted to do journalism and psychology, and I never thought of um, advocacy for blindness. I... Um, it was only when I sort of, um, you know, start to move around in society and to realize how much we discriminated against um, intentionally or even unintentionally and how we need to struggle. My mum had to read books on 
cassettes for me because they were not yet printed. She was sitting up till the middle of the night. And I tell you what, she was very verbal. If she read some of the poetry or some of the, she never believed in all the psychology crap, as she called it. So she would say, I can't believe in the middle of the cassette. I can't believe I'm reading this crap to you on a cassette so that you can become qualified in something. And I said to her afterwards, you know, I can never pass those cassettes on to other people because you are so judgy. But anyway, <laughs> no, we had a we, we had a great time of walking. Or I can hear a light up. She would say, so, hang on, this is getting boring. I'm, I'm just going to get my smokes. And I'm like, you can't talk during the during the recording. What if I want to pass it on to someone else? Anyway, um, so then I couldn't find a job with my skills. And I became a switchboard operator, which is nothing nothing wrong with that. But it was very tight cast, you know. If you were blind in South Africa, and unless you studied something like um, being a lawyer or a physiotherapist, um, you kind of became a, a switchboard operator. And I did love talking to the people, but I really wanted to work in my field of study. And then, in, um, well, I'm going to declare my age now. And then in 96, my family moved to New Zealand. They were recruited, my sister and brother-in-law, as teachers in maths and science. There was a shortage in New Zealand. And, and my mum, they, they had two small kids. And uh, my mum, of course, said, well, the one is three, the one is one. She's going to come to New Zealand. And I was the only one left. And at the time, there was still a, a package called um, Family Reunion. We don't have that anymore. Unfortunately, immigration, like everything else, is becoming stricter and more frowned upon for disabled people. So at that stage, when I could prove I was the only family member left, um, I could come across. So I came across to New Zealand. And then I really started to struggle to find a job. My guide dog went into quarantine. It was a hassle getting her back. Um, and I just realized, you know, I just started to advocate. And my first few jobs was in the area of um, counseling. And um, and I just found, oh, there's so much, you know, I just automatically would start to link with local government about transport and stuff. And the next minute, I was joined um, with Blind Citizens New Zealand, which is a bit like ACB, but here in New Zealand. And, um, you know, became an advocate and became on their board. And we had a, a World Blind Union or international rep representatives. And one day when in 2007, when one of them became... Uh, quite suddenly unavailable to travel to China, to Shenzhen. Uh, someone asked at board level, can, can someone else go instead of that person? And I foolishly stuck my hand up and said, oh, I'd love to go and, and, and advocate for us all, you know, not just for people in New Zealand, but talk about uh, issues and progress and technology and not just the, the negative issues, but the positive sharing of information. And that is, um, and so from, from then on, I was just... Um, you know, the bugs got me. I, I traveled a lot. I, and um, next minute during COVID, I was put forward as World Blind Union president. And, um, and I'm having a, and having a great time, supported by wonderful people. And, of course, one of the unintended consequences is having been invited by ACB to Schaumburg. Actually, Janet invited me early in 2020. It was, it was, it was in February. So she wrote me saying, We'll pay for you. You come and see us. And I said, I'm, I'm on. I'm in. It's February 2020. And of course, March, the world stood still. The borders got closed. And I thought, oh, that's that. And then three years later, I get the follow-up message. Oh, it's it's 2023. Can you come this time around? And I'm like, well, yes, I'll be there with, with bells on, you know. So that's a very short synopsis of where I'm from and how I uh, became involved in the blindness advocacy area.
Hmm, so if you don't mind, let's let's go back a little bit. Um, can you tell us what it was like going through, you know, schooling in South Africa and when technology started to boom? Did you guys get it there early on? What what was the process like and and you know, whatever tidbits you want to share from that time? Sure, sure. Um I I always used Braille from the age of five. My mum did a, a, a my mum actually bought a Perkins and made a point of writing to me in Braille. She wanted Braille to be normal in our house and not just um, me to use. So that was very fortunate. Yeah, I realized after, you know, so she would write me letters so that I can read my own private correspondence. It it was great. You know, sometimes in hindsight, we say we should not have been um, uh, segregated as blind children. But hindsight is is marvelous. I still had a, had a great time. Every now and then there's still negative memories like being sat at the table, you shall eat your food and I didn't like your cumber. And you know, there, there's some things like that that's a bit institutional, but I'm wasn't. I decided at some stage I wasn't not going to let that determine who I am, and 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 you know I can now joke about it. Um, and then um, technology came, and I remember the old Versa Braille came in when I was at high school, and the DOS computers. Uh, so we did that, but because there was not funding for equipment um, for individuals, like when I went to university. I still took my Olivetti uh, um, typewriter to write my exams on, and in the class I recorded my uh, lectures on cassette. Later on, when my mum finally borrowed um, money off the bank, we bought an ordinary computer, no voice or anything on it because that was so expensive. And uh, I would type on the computer, and she would go and correct things visually afterwards. So un unless I press a button that that pressed me into a another a menu. I would just, you know, be careful. Um, and then it was only, uh, then I got a Braille light um, that I really loved because for the first time um, you had a Braille display at your advantage. Again, that was bought by um, by personal funds I got from the bank and I brought the Braille light to, to New Zealand. And in New Zealand, there's now packages. So if you are either in employment or you've got self-employment or you're a student, you can apply for government funding for equipment. I mean, it's not never-ending funding, but so here I'm now, um, so finally here because I'm in um, employment and on various boards and so on, equipment is is, is um, provided for me. So I think there's still a lot of people struggling. If you, for instance, a parent, so you, you don't work, you're not in study, but you want to um, uh, say, you know, do this stuff with your kids or with your parents or whatever, it could still be hard, and then you still need to find a fund to apply for. So, yeah, technology probably got to me a little bit later on than for other people, probably just because of the, the availability of the cost. So for those of us here in the United States, we, you know, we're well aware of what the ADA granted us as well as other, um, you know, other laws and, and, and policies that were put into place for us, especially in the areas of, of transit and, and communication and, and having each state having its own, whether it be the division of blind services or commissions for the blinds, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> starting, starting with South Africa and then, you know, New Zealand, what you know society wise and and government you know looking at making you know the world as equitable as possible does that to what extent does that exist in in south africa maybe around the rest of the continent and how different is it from being in new zealand 
Um, that got brought home to me uh, when I attended the World Intellectual Property um, Accessible Books Consortium board meeting that I'm on in July. I went from Schaumburg to Geneva, and I'm on that consortium, and there were people around the table from Africa who had one or no device to read a book. So even though we now have the Marrakesh Treaty to make books available, people do not still have the equipment. I sat there. And I counted, I had four devices I could read a book on. Without meaning to, I had my laptop, I had my Braille Sense, I had my phone, and I had my Victor Stream. So, with, you know, so the privilege is still very much. So I had four devices that I could just decide, I'm now going to read a title. Where the people next to me, the guy, he was from um, Zimbabwe, he's, he's in the Senate. He's a representative for his government for disabled people. He's got... Apart from a cell phone, there's no apps on there to read a book. And the East government has now finally um, offered to get him the latest Braille Sense. I'm not sure what it's called because I still got the old mini Braille Sense and I believe that there are a few additions ahead now. And I just thought, you know, um, not saying against Africa or for New Zealand, but there's still a lot of work to do that we have equitable access. So we can't just make sure, say, oh, there's a server that we now have titles available, thousands of them. But what, are, what can people actually read them on? Otherwise, people are still equally uh, um, disenfranchised and disadvantaged. Is Braille prevalent? Is it, you know, is it, do most blind individuals in South Africa, do they get the experience of learning Braille? Or was that something that your no, mother that was, was adamant about? It was really, um, we, um, Braille was always foremost in front. And even, even just even with music braille, all of us had to be exposed to music. And then it was up to you whether you liked it or not. It wasn't as if your parents had to beg. So we had um, braille music. Braille was very prevalent. We always had the Perkins braillers at school. I realized that in other countries, people would have still worked with the slate and stylus, which I take my hat off of people because if I use it now, I'm so slow. And there's people <laughs> that can probably write braille with a stylus nearly faster than I can type you know so um but no braille was always i must say we, we were never disadvantaged we had very strict teachers that say if you're going to go to university or just out in the, in the life the world's not going to stand still for you you've got to be literate you either and, and talking into a tape into a tape recorder is not literate you're going to be able to sit there with your typewriter or your or your braille machine and you're going to be able to write um and how about the, you know the greater society in general? Um, is there deference? Do do folks uh, you know understand a lot about blindness? Um, or you know, is it kind of secular in the in the school and employment environments? Um, here in New Zealand, it is quite it is quite secular. Um, there are still some because in New Zealand, children can go to any school of their parents' choice. So that means that resource teachers vision need to travel between schools to help kids with, say, O&M and Braille. And there's still some situations where partially sighted kids get not um, encouraged to learn Braille. You know, they hold up the book as close to the eye or they use a, um, a magnifier like a CCTV or a pebble, and then they, they, get, they get encouraged to use their residual sight. Which is fine, but there is a point in society where if you go out in the world to be employed, can you read, if you do the job um, competitively, 
with other people that's going to apply for that job. Just because you can read 10 words a minute with your with your CCTV, you're not going to get that job if you can read how many words a minute with your screen reader um, or, or Braille. So I think we still have a little bit of work to do in some countries to say, look, it's great to encourage the use of residual sight. But there's a point where you need to say Braille and uh, screen reader use, if you can work uh, more effectively and quicker and more productive, that's what you've got to change to. Otherwise, you're going to be left behind because, in theory, not because you're blind, but you read, you work too slow. Yeah, the, you know, I, I came into into this world um, about seven years ago, and, and I think... I don't want to say a renaissance, but the importance of Braille is having an upswing, at least here in the States of, you know, technology is, is amazing, but, you know, technology can fail or technology, you know, can, you know, go on the blink at the, at any moment. And so to be able to have a backup with Braille, um, you know, and just the push for making sure that our community at least has access to learn it, whether, you know, it's a personal choice. If, you know, I am struggling learning now, um, you know, and I, I often say, I don't think I'll ever get to the place where I would sit down and pull out War and Peace or, or the Bible or anything like that. Um, but to be, you know, to be able in a pinch to have backup notes or to read elevators and room signs and things. Um, how do you see Braille around the rest of the world? Is it still, is it still foremost or is it tagging behind because of technology? Um. I think in countries and in organizations, probably more organizations um, that push Braille, I think it's very important and foremost. I do feel for people who fall through the cracks, like you say, people who become blind later on in life, especially if they don't join a movement like yeah. NFB or ACB or whatever, where there's peers around you that that try to, um, you know, try to motivate you. If you're just someone who's losing your sight, someone links you up with, some uh, low vision technology or, or magnifier, you can go through life not even realizing how important technology or braille is. Um, you know, so and of course, like like everything, it's it's harder when when you need to adjust to something as an adult. And some people really let that that put us off. You know, um, and I understand. You know, I I uh, my my um partner, my husband, uh, uh, tried to learn braille later on in life. I happen to be his teacher, and um, it's not good if partners try to teach one another. It's <laughs> not so fun. It's a bit like when your partner teaches you to drive. You know, you're probably nearly divorced before you, before the other one get driving. But yeah, you know, he's never going to be a braille user. But he's probably at every meeting we go to, he'll be the first one to say, "Oh, at least have have you tried? Or can you read the number on a door? Or can you at least um, do you know how to label things? You know, whether it's pen friend, whether it's braille." whether it's something you have to find a basic or can you play braille cards you know just 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 something that you know you can't if you can't mix just to read to know um the alphabet and numbers will just enable you to play a card game with your peers you know so it's it's not just if you have to read a book i think i've read the bible in my time but i fortunately didn't have to read war and peace um but yeah i i never sit down with a braille book i'm too busy i love talking books but I will sometimes, you know, with my braille device, make my own notes and and things. So it's it's about the it's about making it usable and practical, and not saying you shall sit there with a braille book, you know. Yeah. 
so let's take a step back. Um, when you when you came to New Zealand, was it culture shock? What was what was that journey like for you? And and adjusting to an entire new continent, <laughs> not just um, not. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Um. Look, firstly, my English wasn't very good. Um, my first language is Afrikaans, and although we did English at school because it was compulsory for both, <laughs> there's a difference between textbook, you know, uh, language and speaking. And English, let's face it, unless you grow up with it, like Afrikaans had only one, um, there's one word for is, you don't have am and are and whatever. There's not a continuous and a past and a whatever tense, it's I eat. Not I'm eating, I have been eating, I shall be eating. It's I, you know. So, so to come to a practical uh, country from there, so um, that was firstly that I really had to get, get delved into that. And then there was the whole culture with everybody moving. It's like, is your qualifications um, the same? And, treat, um, you know, is it comparable with, with that of other in New Zealand and, and, and immigrants? Um, the weather was, I found it very cold and, and humid. Like in South Africa, I could, even if it's winter, you can walk across a lawn. The only thing is there's frost on it. Here you can't. It will be it will be soggy. So just going for a walk and and um and then there was language expressions like I walked with my guide dog when I finally got her back from quarantine. So I was without her for nine months. So when when she was finally reunited with me, so I took her for a walk, and there were words like um um in New Zealand and I'm assuming in the states um. Uh, the uh, the traffic light is a, a you know it's it's called when the traffic light turns green or or red or whatever in South Africa it's called a robot and I still remember stopping at a shop and I asked them how many robots do I have to cross to get to a specific destination <laughs> and they were like what the hell robot I said yes you know when a robot the thing that goes green and red I think I was nearly certified but you know so there were a lot of um tiny things like that. People were very helpful, though, but of course, then there was the gap on my CV. Not only haven't I worked here, but I'm from another country. And yeah, so that, that so there's a few things like, like that that I just had to, that you just have to work your way through. And when you, you know, when you started to feel settled and, and got out into the world, what were the experiences like um, as far as, you know, finding technology, finding other blind folks, you know? And, oh, it and- was great. It was great. I, I found technology to be bought for me. I enrolled in a course, which I knew would get me technology. I met up with fellow blind people, which is really just amazing because people will just say, oh, did you know there's a transport? Like in South Africa, we did not have transport subsidies. So you're not going to ask about it because why would you ask for something that you don't know existed? So I got told this, our um subsidy scheme if you take public transport or taxis it can be um heavily discounted so there was really stuff that you just pick up with other people around you and that you don't have to reinvent the wheel if you go through it on your own so let's switch focus um you got to experience the acb convention what are some of the similarities and differences between acb and and um your organization there in new zealand Oh, there's so many similarities. Um, just the fellowship and the, um, you know, people want to do and try things together, and also the recognition that not everybody wants to do and try the same thing. I find there's a lot of passion about whether it's braille technology, um, 
because our organization in New Zealand are quite small, because you just look at our major, our main population is 5 million. Yeah. So you, you look at the blindness. So our, our convention, for instance, would not have what, what you guys have, like the tourist breakup opportunities or the karaoke at night or the wine tasting. So I came back saying, look, we really got to, even if it's on a small scale, we've got to do some, not just talk serious stuff at a convention, but we have to have more opportunities to let our hair down. And um, well, even like that, I think that I went to a function that well, it was to do with a cultural and you know welcoming new people from other countries to the organization. So you tried some uh, Spanish uh, tapas and things like that. You know, it is just, um, so I do think uh, just because of the mere size, you guys are, are doing and handling more, but, um, but no, it was really, it was really amazing at the same passion really much. You spoke earlier about um, employment and, and becoming, you know, a call center operator. Is the, our employment opportunities um, greater in New Zealand and in the wider just population itself? Is there more respect for uh, persons with disabilities? Not quite yet. I think even although people can now say I've got a computer and a smartphone and I can do PowerPoint presentations or web research or whatever, there are still a lot of attitudinal barriers where people apply for a job and, and um, you know, and people just think, oh, it's going to be too hard to accommodate this person. And then you've got to advocate for your own reasonable accommodation and let the prospective employer know that there's um, funding they can go on and you may just need a bit of extra uh, training or the JAWS scripts may need to be updated. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's more people, people still struggle. People still struggle to find employment. There are great examples out there, but um, it, is, it is still a struggle, which I think is, is unfortunately still uh, in, in many countries. What do you think the top three issues for the blind and low vision community are in New Zealand? Um, I would say employment, uh, employment opportunities and find, you know, starting your own business, that sort of economic growth area. Um, I would say um, maybe the confidence and the ability to, to move around and even move around internationally. Um, it's still, especially over the pandemic time, people became a bit more used to being at home and some people don't now venture out as much as they could I won't say should because it's a personal choice but you know people used to um I think travel a bit more and be more adventurous out there and we now know that we can survive without having to do that and then I think the access to technology just out there for people who are not in employment and training not just to get a piece of technology but is someone going to train you how to find books is someone going to help you with um all the some of the apps and things out there you know how do you not get left behind um uh how, how can you know about choices say that the difference between say ira and be my eyes and seeing ai um I, I think there's still a lot of people that really struggle to get access to technology and then when they get it to get good training or good peer support to to, to become proficient yeah so when um 
when you think about aging, first in the broader aspect, the, the full community, and then for our community, um, I know that we we struggle here. A lot of, of folks that are aging into low vision and blindness don't even identify or even identify to themselves. They don't want to face it. Um, what is aging like in New Zealand and then on a more microscopic level for our community? I think it's a huge topic for us to give attention to because many times when people um, are older and become blind, they get showed less, op less options. And I think it's because people think, oh, this person is 80. They're not going to want to surf the web. We just give them a good magnifier and um, they'll be away. And sometimes people say, oh, I'm not quite blind enough, dear. I can still see to cross the road. And I always say to people, you are blind. You are legally blind. And you have access to exactly what I've got access to. Don't think you've got to be sitting with a guide dog or a, or a braille book. That is, that is just some of us that sit with a guide dog or a braille book. But being blind, especially being for older people who are more partially sighted than losing all their sight, how do we get the message out there that um, there's so much technology-wise or even skills in the home? Yes, you can apply to your local, um, we call it district health board. You guys may call it a... Um, hospital or health system to send you someone to help you cook your meals and prepare your meals and um, help you with stuff. But actually, you've been cooking all your life. Why not just use um, gadgets to do it safer, a safer knife, a safer breadboard with a, a guiding knife on it, um, people to label your, your, your oven or your, um, you know, your air fryer and stuff for you. So I think there's still opportunities that we miss to, to really let older people live their blindness with dignity instead of just saying, oh, we'll send you someone every second day to help you with your meals and things like that because you know you're going to be dangerous living on your own. So I think we still need to do a lot for people who lose their sight um, as, as older people and how they can still be living independent lives. Mm -hmm. Before I became, you know, blind, I didn't have much of a understanding of the community. Um, there wasn't a lot of um, reason for me to know much about the community. And I think that that's, that's a world, you know, it, it, wherever you are, if you don't see it, if it's not, you know, if it's not in your family or in your, you know, your school of, you know, circle of friends or things, then you just don't really know about it. Why would you go out? And what do you think are the biggest hurdles to the world's understanding our community. Uh, and if you, you know, if you want to take it to a more microscopic level, that's fine too. Um, I think uh, I want to ask, it sounds a bit aspirational, but this is really, I think for me, it's expectations of others. Um, we surround it, whether we're disabled or not, we surround it by what people think we should or could or must do. And if you're blind, it works down in a more judgmental and attitudinal level. So if you're surrounded by people that, um, like I remember as a child, my, my mom must have just sweated bullets. You know, my first, I was four years old when I told her I'm going to become a vet. Not as in fighting, protecting my country, but as an animal being <laughs> <laughs> And I, I'm sure her first, like many people would just say to you, oh, you're blind. Of course, you're not going to become a vet. For three years, she just said to me, that's great. Yes, I'm Lego, build animals. The reason why I decided not to become a vet at the age of seven mm -hmm. is one night 
So I was at school at back at, at, at holiday at, at home. And she woke me up. So I had to go to work with her because she couldn't leave me alone, you know. At, she couldn't leave me alone at, at home and she and she had to still work. So she would wake me up early and we would and we would go to her workplace. And I woke up at 6 a.m. and I'm like, I'm on holiday. I shouldn't be able to get up. And she goes, What are you going to do when the farmer rings you at 2 a.m. to come and deliver an animal? And I said, That's it. I'm not going to become a vet anymore. So I so <laughs> some so the expectation was not that, oh, you can't do this or can't do that. Now, um, you know, and then I said to her, what shall I become then? And she said, oh, become a lawyer. In case I, I do something stupid, you can um, defend me. And so for ages afterwards, I said, oh, I'm going to become a lawyer in, in case my family do something stupid. So anyway, I didn't become that. But so I think from a microscopic level, if you grow up as a blind child or just as a child or you become blind later on in life, people's expectations of what you can do and what you should do plays such a big role. And if you're surrounded by people that go, oh, well, so you want to drive a car, let's just take it to a driving rink and, and let's get a, someone to, to help you with dual control car. That's what I did. I wanted to feel how it is to drive a car. My friends got me a driving instructor. We had a dual control car. We went to a, a racing track and we just gave it a bit of a whirl. So I, you know, I think, and, and if your family or culture or friends or wherever you are have no expectations of you, and pamper you and, and think you're going to be unsafe, um, then then that's going to impact your life. So I think that is, so sorry for drilling into that, but I think that is our biggest hurdle as well as our biggest opportunity in life. I, I, I agree with you. Um, <clears throat> so here in, in the States, the number 10% is, is floated around a lot of our community being involved with one of the or one of the consumer organizations. Do you think that number is comparable around the world? And in your you know, viewpoint so far, why do you think more of us are not involved with one of the or one of our organizations around the world? Um, I think sometimes service providers, I don't know whether you guys divvy it up in service providers and consumer orgs, but Let's, for instance, say ACB and NFB are consumer orgs. I mean, some of them may provide services, but they're mainly advocacy organizations, and there may be others. That's the only two. Of, but then you get service providers, and sometimes when people lose their sight, the service provider is the first one that you're in touch with. So who's going to help you cooking or cleaning or get you funding for transport or so? And there's still in the world a lot of um, service agencies that will not link you with the, what they see as a political organization. And it's a power thing. It's, an, it's a disempowering thing that, that people do not say, oh, you should link up with your peers and squawk about your problems and just have a good old um, linking with them. They go, oh, no, we've got an instructor here, a rehab instructor that will teach you to use your cane. Um, but, you know, and then you can just go forth in the world and be successful. Well, it's not always Sorry, I can, my dogs are flapping in the background. They're being, they're getting <laughs> their breakfast. So, if sorry if you hear some sound, they're getting very excited. Um, so, yeah, I still think that is that is that is a roadblock. Where um, if you in touch, if you get services first, they do not refer you on and tell you about your advocacy or peer support um, organizations. Um, and also, maybe the thing that, as I said earlier, some people start to lose their sight that they don't want to. Um, be visible in the community with a with a white cane or with something that that let them stand out. That rather just be um, 
subtle in the community. So I think there's still a lot of um, angst about that. So they're not going to say, oh, um, now that I've lost my sight, I, I better become proficient with a white cane and and go tramping. Or It doesn't feel right, you know. And yes, yeah, so I think there's still a, a lot of roadblocks to do with that, um, unfortunately. And of course, some countries do not have advocacy organizations. The only option is the service provider. And sometimes that service provider don't link them with, with other blind people because that will mean they become empowered and they mm -hmm. can actually get on the board of those organizations and they can take them over. I mean, there's great ones like Lighthouse for the Blind San Francisco, where I think a majority of the staff are actually blind people. How many other organizations in the world that are service providers do you get to do that? So there are very, very good ones out there where service provision and advocacy goes hand in hand. And then there's others that um, that do not empower blind people by telling them what their um, options are to affiliate with other blind people. So now tell us about the, the World Blind Union. Give us um, your elevator pitch. What is the World Blind Union? What does it do? Why is ACB a member of the World Blind Union? And you know what led you to want to take the mantle of presidency? The World Blind Union links blind people as well as those who are allies like service providers. It's, so it's meant to link everything blindness and allow us across the world to advocate for one another, to share opportunities, to share information, technology, uh, you know, for us all to link so that we don't all just have to go and reinvent the wheel. And ACB is a member because um, it wants to help the world. It wants not just to do things locally in your own country, but it wants to share information as well as help advocate and as well as share, uh, share struggles. So I think it's about sharing and learning and really connecting blind people across the world. What are the biggest opportunities? You know, exhibitions, there's always opportunities with um, when we get together, people want to see gadgets and things. Now that we're used to meeting online, like now, you don't have to be your country delegate to get the opportunity to travel to some far-flung place and only the elite few get to get together. Actually, everybody can, we, we can do courses online. We can do information opportunities online. So I, I you know, in my role, I said, if there's one thing I want to achieve in my, in my term, it's to say to the grassroots people, uh, we can now all check in. You don't have to be the country president of your organization to have an the organization. The World Blind Union is there for everybody. What are the biggest struggles? Uh, dissemination of information. You know, we send out a lot of information, whether it's through social media or bulletins or talking. And there are just <clears throat> still many opportunities where the information do not get shared and i still go to countries like you know go to uzbekistan and earlier this you know i didn't even know uzbekistan existed before i got asked to go there and the blind person on the street say why should we bother with wbu and i'm like but we give your, your country all the information and opportunities to link in, in technology sessions and what have you so i think it is still hard people are very busy i don't think it happens intentionally that people go oh, i shall not share information but it's, there's so many, you know, we talked earlier about all these podcasts and what is available. We are now inundated with opportunities. So we need to really try to be a bit more um, 
uh, adaptable or a bit more uh, scrutinizing what what do we want do you want to say to someone instead of just listening to music on a podcast what about um this opportunity because you learn about audio description or you learn about um maybe something you, you didn't know exists so i think we now have these opportunities to reach out online it's not a scary thing anymore because we had to do it over the pandemic and we really have to harness it because the reality is we can't all travel to various countries it's just not um well apart from not ecologically probably suitable um it's just not financially viable as well so we've got to link the best way we can absolutely um shifting shifting focus a little bit um what information do we know about the blind and low vision community in ukraine right now are we getting any credible information are there yes. still services um, that are being you know delivered there Oh, yeah, thank you for, for asking. You know, when, when the invasion happened, we immediately got contacted to say, look, we want to donate. But we don't know where to, because there's two strands of people. There's people who want to stay in Ukraine, who need support, but how do we reach them? And there's yeah. countries who are taking people on, you know, Poland, the States, everybody. Yeah. How do we support those people? So uh, we created a fund. We are not the fund of first resort. We do remind everybody that between Red Cross and and, and all the you know CBM and, and, and agencies on the ground, we don't provide support on the ground because we don't have the we're not in every country, and we don't have the uh, capacity. But so we established a fund called the um, Ukraine Ukrainian Unity Fund, and people can contribute to that. And we've now started to not just hand out money, but see who are the agencies in the Ukraine. So we got very good contact with who are in the Ukraine and what they need whether it's white canes, whether it's smartphones for, for free, whether it's apps to say, uh, we had one agency, Blind Square, having, if, if you've got the uh, Blind Square app, which you don't charge for in, in Ukraine, you can actually check in Ukraine where is your closest um, evacuation center. And, you know, just little things like that. So, we, um, so we've got a fund that people can apply to, either, either agencies in Ukraine, or, or agencies that help people that used to live in Ukraine, but they're now settling in other parts. And we, so we're very proud to, although we're not the first responders on the ground, we very much want to be there for blind people who had to uplift their lives or are still prefer to stay there. And um, of course, we had, a, we had a concert where uh, blind people turn up. Yes. Because let's face it, music is a big thing. People at, um, were singing and, 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 that, and people could... Um, Donate. So we are still, although it's sometimes a bit off the off the radar, we know it's still happening. We're still fundraising and we're still um, handing out funds to initiatives uh, in and for the Ukraine. So that is very much uh, we, we very much want to be seen as involved in that space because let's face it, Ukraine is on is is the big ticket item. But you know we had floods in Pakistan, we've mm -hmm. got issues in Syria, um, we've got. Um, even North Korea has uh, signed up as a World Bank Union member. And although we, we can't do much there because they don't have internet and things like that, every now and then when we know of someone going there, we, we try to let them know what blind people across the world are doing and what people may want to aspire for. So I think it is uh, Ukraine just highlights how in this today of um, dispossession and displacement, we still need to be there for one another. And, you know, you mentioned Pakistan as well. What what are some of the other hotspots around the world that we should be paying attention to? 
I think in general, disaster risk and resilience is a huge thing. You know, even here in modern New Zealand, we had floods in, in January that um that that people that people died and that people lost their homes and and things like that. So I think it's not just in developing countries. Uh, a disaster, whether man-made or natural, can happen everywhere. And we have to now get to say to people, are you are you self-sufficient? If you need to evacuate your home, do you have a pack with um, dog food, um, your phone, um, your medication? Can you just not live as a disabled person, but can you try to, whether in your own home if you're stuck, in your own home or somewhere else, how can you uh, try to be self-sufficient as much as possible? So it is about um, getting strategies out there to say, look, once there is an emergency, many disabled people are at the bottom of the rung, you know, um, not, you know, people help each other, they'll, they'll mean well, but they'll see you, may still see you as a disabled person, they evacuate you, the place is not accessible, you don't know where to take your dog, you don't know how to, whether there's going to be a cell phone connection. Um, you know, so I think part of what we can say to people, we don't know where the next earthquake's going to happen or where the next war will break out, but we need to know how can you keep yourself in a good space where as much as possible if you need to evacuate or if you're stuck in your own home without electricity or whatever, what can you do? What, how can you support yourself? So does the WBU have that programming available to countries around the world? How, how does it work? How would, um, let's say, you know, a small country like Samoa say, how do we get our blind and low vision population prepared in case there is a natural disaster? We've got very, the Pacific Disability Forum has got great toolkits around that because let's face it, the Pacific yeah. is made up of a lot of small countries and some of them can almost disappear overnight should something happen. And CBM as well has got, we've got international toolkits about um, how can agencies support blind people in emergencies, but also how can blind people, how can we make sure that we are as self-sufficient and resilient? So, so just thinking of two, there's probably more, but just thinking of the Pacific Disability Forum um, and, and CBM, we've got great resources out there. Yeah, and you know, just our own ACB community, which sprang up out of the pandemic as well. Um, we have disaster preparedness calls. We have all cool. kinds of programming yeah. just to make yourself self-aware, whether it be you know technology that we're teaching or targeted specific. What do you do in a disaster? What is your go bag supposed to have in it? Um, you know, I'm a guide dog user, so like you said, I need to have at least two or three days worth of food in the bag, ready to go at a moment's notice. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's good to know because I think countries can share that more. Um, we can share that more with countries, one another's resources. So the World Blind Union is is broken up into segments. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the structure? Obviously, um, our very own Kim Charlson is very heavily involved. Um, but yeah, can you tell us about the structure and and um, what membership in the World Blind Union? you know, uh, provides for organizations? Sure. Um, so we've got our board, uh, or, you know, our, our main body, like the president, and um, these two vice presidents, treasurer, you know, secretary, the usual committee type structure. We've got a CEO, um, 
used to be based in Toronto, but now after COVID, of course, I can work anywhere. So at the moment, he's in, he lives in Alberta, um, in, in um, Canada. Um, then we've got six regions, and our six regions are um, America, Caribbean, oh, sorry, North America, Caribbean is one, South America is two, Africa, three, European Blonde Union, Asia Pacific, and Asia. Now, Asia Pacific has got more the South, East, North Asian countries, and Asia, the rest. It's a bit of an arbitrary um, delineation because, in my mind, I would have had Asia and the Pacific, but maybe the Pacific would have been a bit small if you just had New Zealand and Australia and the Pacific. Then, from that regional, each of those regions have got a structure, whether it's a board or an entity that um, then does stuff like disseminate information, organize meetings, organize sessions, um, let us know what are the issues to advocate on. And then all the countries that have signed up, it's not a country, it's more an organization. So I think there's six organizations in the States that have signed up to be WBU members. They share the membership cost, but they also tell us what are the current um, issues of the day? What are the current sharing opportunities of the day? And the same happened in each, you know, so now you're drilling into each organization would have either the WBU reps. For some organizations, it's their president. For some organization, it's a, just an elected role. So it's however your organization choose how's gonna, who's going to be your World Blind Union representative. And then it's up to that person and that organization to let the trickle effect go through. So it's not just a, a high ethereal, um, uh, we're part of the World Blind Union, but there's something up there. But how can we make it relevant to, uh, to our members? And if people share with us information that they think others in the world will benefit from, how do we get that through that structure? And then we've got various working groups and various committees, like um, we've got a women's committee, uh, employment committee, access to the environment working group. And most of those have got reps from each of the six regions. So we don't just want, oh, Europe will do this or America will do this. We, we need to take everybody alongside with us. So, so it's not just geographical, it's also topical. A bit like your organization, you know, you've got your, your uh, geographical chapters, but you've also got affiliates to do with, say, whether it's BPI or Braille or um, women or, or, or whatever, you know, we have, have, have those. Um, so we don't have, um, we don't have a pride, uh, well, of course our countries have got their pride movements, but at an international high level we don't, so um, that's Yet. what I said to you guys, we, we really want to bring that, that into the fold, and when we have um, get-togethers, at least try to say, look, in your own country there might not be something like this, in some countries some things are still illegal, but this is now a safe environment where you can mix with people, from other countries and actually just talk to them and, and build some fellowship. So we're not going to say to a country like, I'm just going to guess because I'm not sure whether it's illegal, Tanzania, you shall have a pride movement because for all we know, it might still be um, uh, um, sexual orientation um, um, difference may still be not legal. legal. But we're going to yeah. say to people, when you travel to this event, there will be opportunities to link with um, similarly minded people and at least just to build your 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 thinking and your capacity. So we've still got a lot of work to do. 
I think I think that's the uh, the statement of 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 the community that we still got a lot of work to do in all areas. That might be the statement of the world as far as <laughs> where we find ourselves today. But um, individual members of ACB, is there anything that we could be doing to support you know our community around the world, especially in you know the non technologically advanced countries? I think um, there are some opportunities. I think one is to actually link via um, link with um, social media because let's face it, uh, what we now work with people is that at least if you've got a smartphone, you'll be partially enabled. So I think if we find networks with these other people, please individually link. People are very motivated and inspired by knowing what, what someone else out there is doing. I think also there is opportunities to distribute equipment, you know, whether it's from white canes, whether it's um, if these donation opportunities, sponsorship opportunities, um, bring people across to your organization. Maybe have a, um, a, a bit of a, 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 um, of a fellowship, you know, bring people into your organization to work there for six months. And you know, it seems like if it's very micro one-on-one, -on -one, but it makes a huge difference. We've seen organizations getting someone in from another country and they go back and they basically tell others what is possible. So yes, there's a group level with social media, be in touch. And of course, each of your organizations, I would say for special interest groups to reach out. So if you've got a women's group, a pride group, a technology group, um, <clears throat> anything, Ask your um, your rep, whoever that is, uh, to get you in touch with those and, and others in other countries so that you work on that interest level, not just country level, because that is just sometimes too large. If you want to talk about issues about um, growing old, yes, there's some elderly networks across the world. Try to link with them at, at that level, and because that's how we know at WBU level what, what's happening on the ground. Otherwise, we don't know. Interesting. Um, and what are some what are some of the major concerns for the World Blind Union as far as you know going into spaces that are politically with political unrest or that may not offer opportunities to disabled communities because they have very little opportunity for their general population in general. Yeah, I've got a good example here, and it's where I learn a lesson because to me, my role is not just about um what I can offer because I can only offer time. I'm not a specialist, but what I've learned, um, when I was still part of the Asia Pacific board, we traveled to um, Lao PDR, Laos, oh, um, for a meeting. And um, the first thing some of the women they said is that um, they, the woman wants to get together and talk about health care and what they need. And if they want to be parents, some of them got told you're not allowed to be parents because you won't be able to handle kids, etc. So from a first world perspective, my first reaction is, oh, well, we'll, um, we'll form, you, you form a women's group and then you meet every um, month and you get together in person. This was pre-COVID. You get together in person and now we're going to help you. We're going to travel with you to, to your government and we're going to ask them to, to, to enable that. And the guy stood up. He was translating for his wife and he says, Martin, do you want us to be arrested? We don't have the right to assemble. When we get together in groups, immediately people think, oh my word, um, 
what are you meeting up for? So immediately I learned that my my solution of getting together and and meet is probably so <clears throat> the long way the, the short story, but the long way around that was the government did agree to fund a blindness library that would include large print books, books on a cassette or, at the, or, or a digital and braille books. And of course, what do you have when you have a library? You have little meeting rooms, meeting spaces, so people can get together to read and to teach each other braille. And what happens when you do that? They talk about other stuff. So we, so that organization, I mean, it sounds, I, I simplified a bit now, but finding how can you, how do we ask a government to do something that they will do? Um, because we can't change, we can't change them politically because we're not at that level. And we don't want any of our people to be arrested unless they, they choose to, to, to do a ride or something. Um, but yeah, so that blindness library got formed and then it led to other things. So it's how do we find solutions that work that, that work so what I want to say is we, we go to countries, we will not advocate and get people into trouble, but we will try to figure out what is the right thing to advocate for so that so that we um so that so that people can still you know um reach their potential without getting people into trouble. Unless people ask us to write a strongly worded letter, like um about 20 years ago. We got told by blind people in Tanzania that um, the albino people got killed. Um, people with albinism got killed for their body parts would be used as as mooting. It's very distressful for us because we can't go in there and stop it. But we said to the rest of the countries along the world, we should all now um, contact our political points in Tanzania and say, you are allowing blind people to be killed for a sense, you know, for um, this should not happen, and um, you know. So I think there's sometimes you've, I feel a bit um, helpless because I sometimes think I would just like to go in there and and tell someone's government not to do something. But I also realise that I don't want to make things difficult. Maybe they still get government funding that organisation. Me going in there or us going in there may may stop that. So how do we find the level of how people want us to be involved? Hmm. I'm going to I'm going to ask one of the uncomfortable hard questions. What what is the general reputation of the United States and and more you know more uh, pointedly the community the blind and low vision community of the United States in sectors around the world? Um I think the United States are being seen as great and modern and we we always invite your exhibitors like it's a hub of technology, right? So I think people would say, oh, if I want to know what the technology to use, I'll, I'll talk to some of my friend, my John from the States or, or Sue from Florida or whatever is using this. I think there's a, that is a, the great uh, enabling information sharing point. I think politically it's, um, it is a bit hard because if um, <clears throat> um, people did, um, you know, you, you do hear negative stuff about immigration, and then people think, "Oh, if I want to move to the states, I feel like, you know, I, I can't. It's hard enough just to go and study there." So it's been seen a bit as um hard to get into, um, uh, because everybody thinks you're going to then just want to stay on forever and be a burden of the state on the state. So I think there's a bit of a perception that um, it's it's not a good place as an as a 
blind person from another country to possibly be um, to be embraced. But you know what? The moment you meet, like I would have thought, especially about five or so years ago, I would have thought, oh my word, you know, it's going to be so difficult to get into the States um, just for study or anything. And then I go to a, a, a convention like in Schaumburg and the individual person on the ground is so um, is so embracing. So I think the media, the media, um, dare I say fake media sometimes, is always portraying the States in a bit of a adversarial role. And then sometimes people think, oh no, I mean, these, um, these opinionated Americans. And then it costs us all to get together to realize, look, we all like the same wine, we all like the same food, we all got the same issues. Um, it, it's sometimes just what the media choose to portray. I, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, I would have, if somebody asked, you know, what do you think, it, where do you think is the best place in the world to live if you're blind or disabled? I would have said America, but I've heard Canada, I've heard Spain, I've heard Germany. Um, is there is there a place in the world that is regarded as like the best or the easiest place to live in if you're blind or low vision? Really, I think, um, I think there are pockets of, of Oh, um, Canada is good to move around. And then you meet up with some people in Canada and they, they say, oh, no, it's still a problem. Or people go, Scandinavia, you know, there's always this thing about, about north, um, the northern parts of Europe. But I think, you know, and then I meet people who are totally happy, totally happy in, um, sorry, can you hear me? My computer is... Yeah. Yeah, there are people that are totally happy in Singapore or Ghana or Spain or um, the Caribbean. They le they feel they're leading a great life. So I think sometimes if you think where's the best place to live, you put your cultural expectations and your uh, what you're used to onto it. So I think instead of saying what is the pla best place, how can we share information that people choose, wherever they live, choose to do something or not to do something? Because I think any country can just really become your, your little your little haven. That's that's great. So before I open it up to our listeners to ask some questions or some comments, can we have a little fun and get to know you as a person? Did I lose you? Uh oh, Martine, I think you went muted on me. Oh, what is the question? No, we're gonna uh, have a little fun. Get to know you as a person. Person. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Being on the presidency. Okay. So, top five favorite foods. Top five favorite foods. Favorite what? Food, food. Oh, sorry. In <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my uh, oh, seafood. Anything that's like mussels and oysters and that sort of stuff. Um, uh, pasta, good old carbonara. Um, uh, Oh, can I say lovely wine and whiskey? Is that a food? You, you got, we'll count that as a food on a Sunday. Absolutely. Especially if okay. Gabe's in the room. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, um, uh, oh, and yeah, just some natural things. I just love an assortment of, 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 you know, say nuts and things like that. Olives, nuts, little, little charcuterie kind of things. So, what? yeah, when I go to a restaurant, instead of just ordering a bulk of steak or pasta or something, I love tapas. I like a place where I can have a bit of 
a, a little sampling of, and play, yeah. A bit of nuts, a bit of uh, maybe um, steak guitar, a bit of, you know, just this and that. I think it's so nice that we have that. Um, that and, and of course, it gives you the opportunity to try different countries' food because otherwise you're just going to stick to to what you used to. So at least in a restaurant, you can try stuff without having to buy it. And then if you like it, you can buy it. But yeah, I love the variety. What's been the the most surprising country you visited and why? Surprising. Interesting, surprising, scary even. What what stands out the most to you? What was your, your best what adventure Mongolia? So Mongolia, you know, um, I went to Mongolia and it's so weird because either that or Uzbekistan, both were part of the USSR. So you got that real... Um, People that do as they told, Russian-influenced, state-supported culture plus uh, Asian inflection, and with countries like Uzbekistan and Mongolia really going years back, years, years, years back, with the trade, you know, the the, the Silk Route and all of that. So you get the most. When you look at culture or food, I just was the most amazing mixture of. Um, how people think and what they do and what they eat and what they got access to. So I must say those two was really like, uh, you know, quite um, very surprising. How many guide dogs have you had? I'm on my fourth one. God bless. Really my fourth one. What is the most embarrassing thing a guide dog has ever done with you? Um threw up in an elevator um because you've got nowhere to go we got into the elevator there was about six of us close proximity everybody look at the sky everybody and the, suddenly i heard that sound and most guide dog handlers would know that we know the I sound used, yeah i used to have a mate that said it's, it's, a, it's a good old um, manual washing machine sound goop, 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 and I'm like, oh my word and i said oh my dog's gonna throw up and i just say it up there and you could feel people cringing and it just had a big old spew in the elevator we were traveling people could go nowhere but when those doors open, I tell you, it was like the exodus. Everybody was gone. And there was nothing I could do because people were calling the elevator. And I just said, I said, can someone let them know? The elevator is now going to open on some floor with dog vomit in it. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned playing cards earlier. What, um, what are some of your favorite amusement items? I love playing cards. I love playing dominoes. Everything like that. I love. Um, uh, I love game shows. Like if if you watch, um, oh, I don't know what's you know all these quizzes and things, or, or even just playing on Google or Alexa when, when you play, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, competitions like guess this song, who am I? Uh, we've got a pool here at home, and as, as well as a spa. I think you guys call it a hot tub. Love water. I'm a Cancerian, and I just love. When I relax, being having a talking book or you know reading a book, being near water, having friends around me, yeah, that's really love it. Well, then I guess I know the answer to this question. Would it be beach or snow for you know your getaway? Beach, maybe snow once, but I think with all my slipping and stuff, it might get a you know uh, once I put a, a few snowballs down someone's back, I think probably overall beach. <laughs> <laughs> um any books that have really touched you that you recommend 
I read so many. I've recently read um, books from Ed, Edith Ravel. She writes about um, Israel, this, the state of Israel in the in the 80s and 90s. And when you travel there, that was my most recent books by, by Edith Ravel. And it was just like, oh my word, it's a whole different different life out there. That is one. And of course, I love spy novels. And even just reading older stuff like um, from Frederick Forsyth or, um, you know, I'm like, oh my world, I just, whether it's true or not, but the spy world, the, the world out there and, and how we would try to gather information on one another. I, just, I love I love spy books, I love murder books, and then some books with a more historical tinge, like the recently with the Edith Revell books. 10,000 Lovers, um, uh, look, look For Me, those ones, that's the Edith Revell ones. Awesome, thank you. How about music? What um what really sings to you? Oh, I love the eighties. That's my uh, it's a comfort food. You know, when in doubt, go to the eighties. But then I also love modern music. I love I love some rap. I love Usher. I want to come to the states and uh, see Usher at some stage. Uh, love I love music that tells a story. Um, political music. I just love a lot of music. And then, of course, having grown up with brown music, um, I love good old, I love some classical. I love Mozart. Some people think he's a bit, he's a bit melancholy, but I like melancholy. I like, I prefer minor uh, music with a minor tone in it than a major. Maybe it just makes me a bit sad, but yeah. So, yeah, all sorts, really. I think you get a, a a bit more of the emotional feel when it's in a when in the minor chords. Oh yes, yeah. Yeah. If you could play any instrument, what would you want to play? A harp. Oh my word, it sounds beautiful, and it looks so complicated. <laughs> it does look complicated. But it the is sound. Absolutely. I think. Oh, I think I could. You know, you could seduce the world with a harp. There is actually a group here. I, I think it sprung out of the ACB community that are that are learning harp together. I thought that was awesome. Oh what is the one experience that you know you mentioned earlier driving car, you know, for, for Gabe and I, it would definitely be flying a plane. What is the one experience you'd want to do if you could have eyesight for a day? Goodness me. Um, oh, I sat for a day. I sat for a day. I, I think I'd like to uh, be, become a, 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 be a head of a pirate ship. Not killing people, just going out there and commanding this ship and look really scary. That's awesome. I think that is the first time I have ever heard anything like that. That's awesome. I read the Belong Stockings. And, you know, when she grew up, they asked her, what do you want to become? And she said, a pirate. Now, I don't really want to kill people and steal stuff, but imagine the look and being out there on the seas. And I'm like, yep, yep. If I had sight for one day, I'll hit a pirate ship. Is there a time in history you'd want to go back and try to experience? Oh, um, maybe around Alexander the Great. I think, or, or yeah, two things, either around Alexander the Great or the, um, the Greek times with um, Helen of Troy and that lot. I went to the city of Troy in um, in in Turkey, and now of course it's disputed whether I really visited the city because um, people say it's three thousand years old. But they built this walkway across the ruins so you can walk, and you're not allowed to touch these walls. And they 
they're crumbling and they're 3,000 years old and who knows how authentic it is. But this one guy said to me, I'll take a quick photo if you want to reach out and touch the wall. And just to touch a wall that supposedly was 3,000 years old, it was like, oh, my word. I don't think it might have been a very good time for disabled people, though. But maybe if I was a, a, a princess or something, I would have been all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think we're going to open it up and hear from the audience. Sheila, do we have any hands? Not yet. Well, folks, if you want to talk to Martine, get your hands up. And in Clubhouse, we are definitely uh, taking conversation from you as well. So, Martine, what was your first real advocating experience and how did it feel? Um, or success, I should say. What was your first advocating success? When I when I started to study psychology at university, um, I had a few lecturers that would say to oh, me, because, because of not making eye contact with um, clients or patients, you won't be able to become a counselor or a psychologist. And my immediate reaction was, but I can, as long as I feel, yes, yes, I'll, I'll miss that. Of course I will. But surely oh, there's probably. more to eye contact. So at university level, I had to really um, uh, prove myself and justify that. And, I, and it was successful. I, I did, you know, they would take us to um, work experience sites. And I think they would watch me extra. Then they watch others and they introduce you to, to clients and you would do psychometric tests or you would just have interviews. And I think I, I proved that just sitting down with someone and and being with them, being there for them, being there with them. And that is one I remember because, you know, I was very nervous. I'm like, if you, don't, you know, how can you just put your judgment on me just because I can make eye contact? And is there an opportunity that you weren't successful that you still think about? Oh goodness! Um, um, yeah, I, I think I think there was a few jobs I applied for that I really would have wanted, and and that I didn't get. And of course, you can't take them to a local tribunal and say that you didn't have a good interview. But by the time someone don't want to employ you, you probably don't want to work for them. But yes, I, I would have. I, I still think of a few employment opportunities that um, that that I think I didn't get because of my blindness, not because of my skill. And um, I just, you know, that that is, uh, yeah, that, that probably sticks, that stays with me, although I'm, I'm not going to let it, you know, ruin me. But I sometimes think, you know, if I wasn't blind, would I be in the position I'm in now? No. But now I am, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You would have been a vet in getting up at two o'clock in the morning to deliver calves. <laughs> yes. And in my free time, I would have sailed the seas and get some booty. <laughs> <laughs> you know that has a double meaning in the States. <laughs> I've just realized it now as I said it. I've just realized it now. <laughs> what What do you wish the decided world, and, and I, and I kind of hate using the term blind world, sighted world, et cetera, but, you know, for certain times, it just works. What do you wish the, the sighted world knew about us instinctively? You know, that we have been educating for years and just not breaking through. What's the one thing you wish that they knew and we didn't have to explain? We are just like you. 
we make mistakes, we go to the toilet, we get dressed, we want to study, we are just like you. It's threatening because people say, if you ask people about their fears, I think blindness is up there with with cancer and public speaking. You know, yeah. what, are, what is the greatest fears? Blindness, public speaking, cancer. And I'm like, what the hell? It's not the most scariest thing. I can think of much more scarier thing. So just, we, we are like you. And and if, and if you were to become blind, it won't be the end of the world. You may need to change a bit how you do things, but yeah, that's... <laughs> Sheila, if we get any hands, just break through. Let me know. Oh, I will. So I asked you about your best adventure. What was your most harrowing traveling adventure? Oh, harrowing. Mm. The TSA in Chicago. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. <laughs> um. Goodness me, I, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to think, and I just and I just can't think of. Oh, of course, I went to Myanmar that, that used to be called Burma, and it was a great meeting. You know, we met with the blindness community there. Um, we did a bit of shopping and sightseeing, and of course, there was a lot of open sewers and things, and you know, just sitting outside. So we we sat at this hotel, and a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, we were sitting outside, and we were having a wine and a pizza. And there were these stray dogs, but they're wild. You can't touch them, right? Staring at us. And because I heard this rustling in the lawn, and I said to the waiter, are people there? And I said, no, it's dogs. What, you don't touch them. Don't feed them. Don't do anything. And I thought, oh, my word, this is gross. These poor, hungry, wild dogs. And then the next morning, I was supposed to leave the country, and I woke up, and I was extraordinarily ill. And um, the antibiotics they gave me was quite... Um, uh, uh, probably old-fashioned some of the first lot of the block and I had a body reaction so on the way home I had to deep plane at Malaysia and I had acute kidney failure so we still don't know whether I got Giardia which is like from contaminated water because I tried not to drink uh, water apart from bottle or whether it was food or, or, or you know just walking around the sewers I got uh, acute kidney failure and um, um, and I was stuck stuck in a country that wasn't well known to me and I just wanted to come home and they say you're not well enough to fly and I had to bribe the, the consulate to say if you can just get me to the airport I want to fly home because if I'm going to die I want to die at home I don't want to uh, die away from home so they spirited me out of the hospital because the hospital wouldn't sign that I'm um, to travel and I remember the girl from the consulate saying to me don't eat or drink anything so that you don't fall ill and um, we're going to put you by the loo. We're going to sit you by the toilet in the plane. And once you get to your country, you can be as ill as you want. I'm like, fine, fine, I'll do that. I'll just pretend. And I, and I got home. So that was that was quite <laughs> to get home with, with acute kidney failure. Wow. Is, is New Zealand truly home now? Yeah, I support the sports team, so it must be, eh? <laughs> once you support... And, and Auckland, because many people, yeah, once you support your sports team, you're probably home. But also Auckland, many people outside Auckland, I'm not sure whether you've got the same in the States, but people are, people outside Auckland are often anti-Auckland because we are the biggest, nicest city anyway. So people go, oh, that's Auckland-centric, or at least Aucklanders or so. So, um, yeah, I defend Auckland big time. So, yeah. <laughs> what is your favorite sport? 
When I played it, I loved the empowerment of goalball. I had a few injuries, but I loved goalball because it was a sport that would equalize um, blind. You know, you just have to put on a, a, a um, blindfolded and you'd be equal. But and then swimming, I, I really love swimming. So between swimming, sort of mainstream sport swimming and adaptive sport goalball, those were my favorite. We have you ever had the opportunity to swim with the dolphins? I have. Isn't that extraordinary? It's amazing. They are so intelligent. <laughs> and the sweetest, I, I often say, I think Posh in a formal life, that's um, Gabriel's guide dog. I think Posh in a formal life was a dolphin. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, just as we were previous people or animals, I see some of other animals in my in my dogs and my dogs too. <laughs> What's your what's your dog's name? Greg. Can Greg. you imagine them giving me a dog, Greg? G R E G. Greg. Interesting. Oh, how can you give a dog a human name like that? Oh, it's oh, it's a bit like Gabe, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> where does where does Greg come from? How do you mean? Where does he come from? Did you get him in New Zealand, or did you fly? Oh out? yes, in New Zealand. So. I had Hetty was my South African dog that I brought with me from South Africa. Then my second dog was Cosmo, a New Zealand dog. Then Western, a New Zealand dog. And now Greg, he's here from the um, Blind Low Vision in New Zealand. So for someone who has never traveled internationally, what would you tell, what would you tell folks? Beyond, don't be afraid. You will definitely get through it. It'll be scary. It'll be harrowing at some point, but it'll be... What would you follow that with? When you plan to travel, try to plan things that you did not do before or would not do in your own country. Or not would not do, um, sounds a bit as if you've got a secret life. Say, for instance, there's not a specific opportunity here. So think of things to do while you're away because you may never get there again. And if you do, it's, it's a bonus, you know. So if you haven't tried a specific food, try that. But And if you want to. If you haven't been to climb something or row a boat or um, go to a specific musical experience. So so don't just travel and, and survive it. Look beforehand what happens in that country and then try things. What are some of the things that we would see, do, experience if we were to come to New Zealand? Oh, um, of course, bungee, but you probably get that somewhere else maybe. Um, there is... Um, Zorbing. I don't know whether you guys know Zorbing. No, what's Zorbing? Zorb. Um, so Z-O-R-B, it's it's you either get dry zorb or wet zorb. So you get into what is like a a ball or a huge balloon thing, and then they roll you down a hill. Now, if you wet zorb, there's water in with you. Otherwise, there's not. Now I don't know who designed that, but it's um yeah. Tree walking, I think some more countries do that now, but we do more tree walking now. So um, get you up in the branches there's little movable platforms so you're up there with the birds up there with a the, um you, you know so uh that that sort of thing um uh oh and of course our culture that the maori culture very indigenous you can go to a marae which is a which is a communal house where maori people stay and try real interesting food that's been cooked in the ground <coughs> um, hear the most amazing music that you can't hear anywhere else and just really do that whole um, 
we've got geysers. It's some of our places, because New Zealand is, is quite based on um, a, or, um, volcanic, uh, a many dormant volcanoes and some live ones. There's also a lot of uh, spring thermal, um, thermal activity. So apart from hot springs, you can go to these places and every, say, 12 hours or six hours, these guys spout water out of the ground. And it's like a like a fountain. And then you can, you know, and in some places you've got much more hot, natural hot springs. So if you go and stay there in the hotels, there, all of them got hot tubs that are naturally um, thermal energy. And of course, that's supposed to be very healthy with you. So we do a lot of the real outdoor things, a lot of things that are really different. So please come to visit. <laughs> <laughs> and what were what were some of the takeaways from coming to convention? What did you bring back with you besides the bottle of wine? <laughs> besides the bottle of wine, you know, I tried to bring that bottle of wine, and I thought if no one's going to appreciate it with me, I'm just not going to bring it back. Anyway, really, the variety of stuff that you that you put on the, the concurrent, you know, you can go to that conference and you can do, you could have done three different things all week and not meet one another. In other words, a variety of, um, of what to do. And I think that is the thing that we don't just want to get together to talk about things. We want to experience things. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was, um, yeah. That, that, that was just that was just really wonderful to experience the variety of activities that that you guys did put on and how organized it was and um and accessible and even hotel i mean yeah, most of our hotel staff are good too but really every time i come back from a function like that i'm like wow weren't the staff just amazing because you can prepare stuff but nothing comes to until the masses rock up and you've got all these blind people turning up and then the proof is in the pudding, you know, they've got to serve your food. They may find you wandering somewhere. I got lost a few times and I would just yell out and someone come and help me. So, yeah, I, I think there's, there's just great takeaways. <laughs> what um, what sessions stood out to you? I love the idea of the Braille breakfast um, that I presented at. I loved um, that cultural event. It was a, a cultural event where... Um, where there was quite a focus on different things from other countries. Um, and I loved the accessible wine tasting. You know, it was, um, apart from that, for the first two drinks, the, the serving person told me which wine it was. And I said, you're not supposed to tell me, we're supposed to guess. Gabriel wants us to guess because <laughs> they would come around and say, here is this. I said, don't, don't, don't tell us. So apart from that, but I think it was really accessible and how you guys did that. Um, in a blind friendly way that was still super accessible. I think anybody, if you're blind or not, could have gone to that and, and had a good time. You know, you didn't just have to adjust for, for, for blind people. So yeah, I really loved it. Thank you. I think um, if Gabriel is not listening, I will play this back for him. He will get um, a big smile from that. So is there anything that, oh, you are. Hi, Gabriel. <laughs> Gabriel's in Honduras <laughs> for a couple of days. Oh, cool. <laughs> Hi, Martine. Hi, so good to hear you. I Absolutely miss you so much. We miss you too. And it's been such a wonderful, even though we spent some time together in Schaumburg, it was, it's, it, it's, it's just amazing to hear uh, your life experience and, and all what you have to share with us. So 
oh no, it's wonderful. I just love hearing from people, you know, not just reading CVs and high stuff. You want to hear what the person is really like. That's Thank that's you. the goal of Sunday edition. We get the information that's needed, but we also try to get to know the people for the, their heart and their spirit. I know I heard a hand go up, but before I take that hand, um, what can you preview for us about Brazil in 2025? Oh, my word. I don't know. I just want to say to people, bring it on. We're going to have a blast. So talk to your local organization. Start fundraising. Please get yourselves there. We don't just want, I mean, of course, we want the, the, the organizational reps there. But we want more people there. Um, there will be online opportunity, but and, and of course we want people to link in. So online, be there. But if you can, try to get yourself there because I want to expose people to things that are not just the usual, not just oh, this committee is about changing the this meeting is about changing the constitution or the elections, you know, all that political stuff. I really want some fun things and some um some educational combined with fun things to happen there that it's not just um, the usual stuff that happens at an annual, at, you know, at a general meeting. Gabriel, you think Put you things can... on the agenda. Say to us, I want to come and present this session or I want a breakout session in the evening on something and it will slot you in. <laughs> Trust me, I'm going to try to get Gabriel to do some wine tastings in Brazil. Oh, exactly. Oh, don't know. That, that goes without saying. We're going we're gonna to show the world how you can do about the wine tasting. Oh my God, wines from around the world, absolutely. Yep, wines from around the world, yep. All right, Sheila, I know I heard at least one yes, go up, so. Brand. Hi there, um, I wanted to ask Martine, um, what is your new favorite technology right now? Is there anything that you're playing with that you're just like really interested in or really excited about? Uh, the Victor Reader, it's probably old news for some, but um, sometimes, the last one to get on board, I had a book board plus for ages and I don't renew those anymore. So mine is on life support. It only works on the charger. So finally I got forced to use the Victor Stream. And the newest one is all all modern and the third edition, the third generation one. So I take it with me everywhere. Yeah. I put speeches on it, I read books on it, I watch movies on it, uh everything on it. Yeah, it's all new and fancy now, and it has it has Bluetooth and it has uh, just yeah. like, all of these awesome features now. Yeah, that's right. That's no, it's really amazing. Were you able to spend some good uh, some good time in the um, expo area? Oh yes, I did. I I, I did. It was it was really great. Um, and of course, grabbing people's business cards to follow up afterwards because you know they are so busy talking to everybody. But yeah. no, it's, it's always great because you never know. You read the expo details beforehand and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure I know what these guys are doing. And when you get there, there's often new things. So, yeah. Did you... Brain, what is the um the new tactile, uh, the graphic Longer. Braille reader called? Oh, monarch, gosh. Isn't it? Yeah, what was that again, Sheila? Isn't it, isn't it the Monarch? The monarch. Yeah, the Monarch, you. yeah. Were, were, you, were you able to play with the Monarch at all? I, I did. It's quite amazing. It's yeah. Really, it's really up there, isn't it? once my you know once my braille skills are better that is the piece of tech that i want <laughs> did, did you buy anything in the exhibit hall uh martine no the only thing i bought was those bracelets from your guys shop you've got these bracelets that you when you go for a walk um say in the dark and they and, and you switch them on and they like glow in the dark oh that's so cool like, you know you want to get things for people that is um nice but not just like an ornament 
And I know people who do go in the dark, you don't go for a walk, and it may be dangerous. Apparently, those bracelets came out after um, someone and their dog did go for a walk and, and got run over. So I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it was lovely little things I could bring back and saying this specifically from ACB. You can either go to a party and show that you've got a, um, a glowing, flashing bracelet, or actually, if you do need to go uh, walk in the dark for one or other reason, you can choose to put that on your cane or your wrist or whatever. Green, any other questions? Um, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head, but give me a few minutes and I'm sure I can come up with something. <laughs> All right. How about you, Sheila? Anything you want to ask Martine? I think you've covered it. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going to ask, and you, you pretty much already did. Um, what has been your favorite place and favorite experience in that place in all of your travels? Oh, well, there's just so many. Um, um uh favorite place um i come to a, a dead stop probably um in japan we went for a homestay situation so we didn't just stay in a hotel but they they found us out to local people not just in tokyo we went to to the outskirts of it so i was staying with his family in the backyard they had a rice paddy when you go for a shower you had to wear these slippers in the shower so you go for a shower before you get in the bath because you can't just get dirty into the bath. So they said, you first you have to shower yourself clean and then you can go. So I must say that one of my favorite experiences was just living in someone's home um, <laughs> with their food and their, um, you know, not, not just, I mean, hotels are lovely because let's face it, you know, you just, um, but I mean, some hotels are just the same everywhere. So being placed in someone's home um, and living what they do or in Korea, the same, you know, we, went for a walk and buy street food and you know you've got the family and let's try this you know it's just where the real people the real people go not as tourists is there a fun is there a space in the world you haven't explored yet that is on your bucket list absolutely south america i can't wait we've got um i've never been to south america and next year i think oh the south america general assembly is going to be in peru and I want to go there and I want to look at, at sloths, you know, three and two toed sloths, because it's something that you can only see in those, you know, you can't get them here or anywhere. So there's all sorts of strange animals I think you can get in South America that, that I would like to have a um, um, up close an encounter with. So uh, that's really um, uh, up there. Well, I guess every part of the world has animals that don't that don't appear every you know everywhere else. Oh, absolutely. You guys, you guys have a few. We've got flightless birds. Can you imagine that these <laughs> birds never had to? They were never targeted, so they lost the ability to fly. And now we've got these islands and, and places where they're protected, so they just walk around. And they've got wings, but they can't fly. It's, it's so counterintuitive. <laughs> so now we can protect them because they can't live with us you know, in the cities because cats or dogs or will get them. So they, they're sort of in protected park areas. And forgive me for my, you know, not so knowledgeable, but uh, do you guys have kangaroos in in New Zealand as well, or are they only in Australia? Only in Australia. I've seen them. I've, I've been there and played with little wallabies and stuff, but no, they're not here. We, just because we're a few small islands, we don't really have um, many, even though it's from Australia, there's a lot of um, 
biosecurity when we travel. Because remember, Australia's got snakes. We don't have snakes at all. Australia's got a lot of dragon types, um, you know, like big um, lizards, lizards. And, yeah. and things like that. So, and of course, the fear was always once you bring something to New Zealand, we are so small, you can bring the wrong thing that can decimate something, you know. For instance, from, from England, someone decided it was a good idea to bring a, a plant called uh, gorse. It's probably got a fancy name because in, in England, it's a good hedge, you know, if, instead of having a, um, a, a fence around your property, you have, you've got this natural hedge, nice looking golden flower that grows that sort of interlinks. It came, someone brought it here and because the weather is warmer here, it's now an obnoxious weed and you've got to burn it to get rid of it because you can't cut it off, the seeds fly everywhere. So something that's good in one place can actually be quite bad in another place. Is it, 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 is that why your your guide dog was quarantined for so long? Yeah, because of rabies, um, rabies, heartworm. Those days, they didn't think they could they could detect rabies without a six month period. They, they thought it had an incubation. Instead of just, I think nowadays they can test you whether you've got rabies, whether it's an animal or a person. But because those days they, they didn't think that they thought it could be dormant in your body. So it was mainly rabies to make sure that dogs in an area where uh, we could see if it's got rabies. Now I could have told them I ever been in touch with someone, but in Africa, many people still die of rabies, never mind animals. So you can't bring a, a you bring something like rabies to New Zealand, you probably um get rid of whole populations of species and things like that. So yeah, that is why it's so so hard, even if you you know travel from the states with your dog, this this won't be possible. But before um, without in, inoculations and tests and all sorts of things. What's the what's the the like uh, custom slash you know coming back home process for you? Is it the same as in the states? Yes. Uh, Apart from coming back, coming back to New Zealand is always you're always ahead of time. So it is it is odd. I, I always say to people, when I travel, I live on adrenaline. So I've got a lot of energy when I travel. When I come back, my husband often said to me, Oh, you're gonna fall ill when you get back. And often I land back, it's been a very long trip, usually very long. I'm suddenly 10 hours or what ahead, or, or from the States, it was 16 hours ahead. And then, you know, I, I lose, I don't have to focus anymore. I don't have to present something. And then I'll come back and then it's all, you know, oh, I suddenly got a cold or I suddenly got something. Last year, I went to um, International Disability Alliance meeting in Greece and Athens and it was so lovely to get together for a change. And on the way back, I, I got COVID and I didn't realize it. And I got back and I said, oh, I don't feel very well. And Gary said to me, oh, but you often don't feel well with your then. And my niece came and did the test and, First one was negative. I said, oh, yeah, I probably just got coming home cold. And the next day, it tested me COVID. And I'm like, just as well. The only good thing is just as well I didn't get it in Greece to be stuck in a hotel room while everybody was out on the, on the water or out meeting. So I had a great time in Greece. But 10 of us who went to that meeting uh, did, get, did get COVID. Fortunately, no one died or stuff. But, yeah, that's just got to take the bad with the good, I suppose. Personal precautions. <laughs> two con two conventions that that had high levels of of um and you know Gabe and I thankfully precaution wise you know it we didn't get anything um 
I think that that's the way of the world now. We're just going to have to be more conscious of hand sanitizers. You know, we should always be yeah. washing our hands. And, um, you know, I watched Asia for years and years and years. You know, they're much more progressive with masking. Um, and that seems to be the the way to the the way of the future as well for travel. Yeah, and even in places like Japan, when you go to the hotel, everything is wrapped. You get a yeah. wrap toothbrush, a, a wrap brush, even your biscuits when they serve you morning tea. It's all individual biscuits wrapped. So I think you know some of those countries have got lots of people that can really uh, you know have taught us how we just need to. Don't just pass the box of biscuits around because, you know, once the seventh hand go in it, you're not sure. So I think we just all have to be much a bit more uh, not knowing, well, protecting others from you. I always say to people, I don't just, I just want to protect against other people. I don't know what I bring to the fold. If I bring a germ somewhere just because my body's used to it, I can actually be infecting someone and, um, and well, it, it just, which I shouldn't. What does a day in the life of Martine look like? Computer work, reading a book while, I, while I'm on my own. I've just got a book pinned to my, pinned to my uh, lapel. Oh, after COVID, I, I wear the Zoom, the Zoom uniform, you know, uh, when I'm on meetings. Lovely jewelry, hairdo, nice top. As long as I don't stand up with a tracksuit pants or shorts. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, that's definitely the zoom uniform the zoom uniform i think I'm, I'm much more relaxed now because i mean there was a time when you get up and work eight to five now that i'm most of my work is from home it's very very i try to still get up early because if you get up early you get more done and then i can have my siesta in the afternoon if i get up too late I, you feel the day as, as i've gone so it's very varied um we've got a nice outdoor area so even when it's cold or not it's not just nice to get some fresh air outside um dogs getting on the bed which is my own fault because i you know having two dogs and and my husband and I, then i complain and my husband says, well it's your own fault because you left them on the bed so it's a bit of a rod from my own back but yeah i think my days are so varied it's never really the same which is probably good are you a good cook am i what are you a good cook a good hug cook cook chef Food preparer. <laughs> I, I'm a good preparer. I, I'm probably not a chef. I'm not going to make a nice cake or do all these um, rendering the fat and making a jus and stuff. But I do. I love preparing. We love preparing stuff, putting things in a mix, see how it comes out. Love that. What's your go-to meal? I make a very good pasta with um, bacon and blue cheese and mushrooms in it. What's the one thing that can bring you back to being a little girl? When I go to the South African oh, shop and I buy and I buy the chocolates or the chippies or the cookies or or sauce or stuff um, from there, the smell, the the raw meat that you that the dried meat they built on, which is a bit like beef jerky. When I go to that shop, I'm just like, oh my word, this is just, this takes me back. The smells and the buying the South African stuff. What do you think? So little Martine at seven who said, okay, yeah, I'm not going to be a vet. That's, you know, I'm not getting up at two o'clock in the morning. What do you think would be the most surprising thing about your life so far for her? 
oh my word, I just traveling, traveling the world. I, you know, I think of myself, I, I don't even think at that stage I knew that there was much else outside my world. There were people that spoke different languages in Africa, but it was, you know, I just, the whole idea of, um, of travel and meeting different people, because it would have just been, would have blown my mind. From your perspective, there's so many different um, ways to live. There's so many different cultures and, and, you know, we have first world, we have, do you think we'll all ever catch up to sort of being in the same place or do we need our differences to make the world go around? I think we need our differences. You know, when I was head of our environmental committee, I always wanted other countries to have the same footpaths, the same pavements, talking buses, talking train, you know, um, announcements on buses and trains. And then you go to places where it is not going to happen. It is not going to happen. And maybe it's just I shouldn't inflict my what is accessible in my Western world. And then I think, look, we've got to just work towards what we want to do. Is that accessible and inclusive? If a taxi means standing on your footpath and waiting for a neighbor to, to come because they always pick up five people to travel to town to do shopping, if that is accessible transport, then that should be accessible. If, um, you know, if, if the reality of electricity, you know, we don't always have cables. Well, there's going to be solar and, and, and other stuff. So if, if you want to do sport or, if you know, what do we do? We don't have to do it the same way. And it took me a while to get there because first I thought, um, this is what an accessible town looks like. And I actually got to the point where, especially now with smart cities and smartphones, um, an accessible town is, there are some basics, but it's not the same. Some people want furniture across the footpath and you can sit down and talk to people and eat street food and people bring their dogs into a, shop and other people go oh no 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 it's not very hygienic the footpath must be two meters wide and i want my app to tell me all the shops along the way instead of just saying oi what a shop is this again you know some people that is how they meet people so i think i try to keep my head around how can we embrace differences but still but still transplant the good you know into other countries and i think it's 10 till Thank you. Uh -huh. What do you tell yourself when you get down or when you have to, you know, deal with a situation that's really difficult? How do you stay focused? How do you stay in a good place? I say two things to myself. One is a bit of a, um, of a cliche, but it really helps. Other people are worse off because I want to remind myself that other people are really, really worse off. But then after I get over that one, I say to myself, don't let the bastards get you down. You, um, Someone did something or something happened. And if I'm going to let it ruin my day or something, I'm actually going to give someone um, the power to make me in the state that I am. Mm. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Do things now. Don't plan for, for your retirement because you're not actually sure whether you're going to be healthy or whatever. So don't say, oh, one day I'm going to, go on a cruise ship or do something. Do If you want to do something, if you've got a bucket list, start planning for it now. 
It's good. What's what do you think is the best piece of advice you've ever given to someone? Don't break down now. We've got to get out of this mess. <laughs> Are you more likely to be the person called for bail money or the person calling out to get bail money? <laughs> called for, hopefully. <laughs> Once been tear gassed and, and I was totally innocent, but when I tell people I've been tear gassed by the police, they go, Oh, my team, not you. So clearly, people think I won't get into trouble. What is your biggest wish for our community and/or the world? Don't frown at change. We've got AI, we've got chat, GPT, everything. These things are a threat, but we need to embrace anything. The pandemic showed us, showed us that we can live at home, we can meet online. Don't don't just don't just be scared of change. We've got to find the positive and it is coming, you know, you can resist it, but it is coming. All right. So can you tell us where we can find the World Blind Union and any contact information that you want to share? Okay, I'm not very good with this because um, but I know that the WB website is 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 WBU.NGO. Um, there is a com website. Someone bought com and 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 co and hoped that we would buy it, and we didn't because with all the dot coms, things were too expensive. So when you look us up, look at wbu.ngo. We do have uh, um, social media. We we do um, have ways to subscribe. But first, find our site, and then if you find it difficult to navigate or something is not there, get in touch with. Uh, Kim or our office and say, look, I want to subscribe to something or I want to know something. It's not easily found because, because just because I don't look at the site every day, I don't often know what is there or what isn't there. But find our site to start with and see what, what are you looking for. And if you can't, let us know because then we've got to upgrade and make things more easily searchable. And by Kim, uh, she, uh, Martine is referring to Kim Charlson. Um, who heads the American Carib North American Caribbean region of the World Blind Union. And the World Blind Union next gathering will be in 2025 in Brazil. Uh, do we know what month it'll be? Uh, no. Not yet. All right. So, Martine, do you want to leave us with an inspirational quote or something to think about for today? Oh, no, just... Go for it because you're not you're not sure whether you're gonna have tomorrow. I like it. Thank you so much. Um, I, I don't know how early you typically get up, but I know you had to be up at least 4 a.m. to be on this your time. So thank you so much for joining us on Sunday edition. I know you and I will definitely be in touch, but anytime that there's something going on that you feel the you know the American Council of Blind needs to know. Let me know, and you have an open invitation to come back to Sunday edition. Um, Herbie, Sheila, Bryn, thank you so much. Everybody out there listening, uh, the podcast version should be up in a day or so. And um, Bryn, I will send you the WBO links to to add to the the show the um, the show notes. All right, Martine, have a beautiful, blessed Monday for you. And again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. I'll see you next week.
You've been listening to Sunday Edition on ACB Media. Stream One. That's American Council of the Blind Media or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Episodes drop every week at 1 p.m. on Sundays. And you can email us at Sunday Edition AC, all one word, Sunday Edition with the letters AC at gmail.com. Let's brunch again together next Sunday.